Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses. Joining me is um, an entrepreneur who's been in the news quite a bit because he raised raised a bunch of money. How much did you raise total, Vivek? We haven't raised that much for where we've gotten the business to. So a little over $40 million in the company's history. With the latest raise, I think was in August. I saw a bunch of articles. Am I right? Yeah, we did it in uh, midsummer last year, which was an interesting time to to do it to wrap something up. But it was thirty million dollars last summer. So yeah. prior, we only raised a little over twelve million dollars. And overall sales are what? What's revenue? We're not sharing revenue number, <laughs> but I can share that we are on an IPO track. So the company's a little over ten years old, and we've got a really healthy business. All right, I got a revenue number here, but you know what? You might have told Ari, our producer in private, so I'm not going to reveal it. Instead, what I will reveal is who you are. Vivek Sharma is the founder of Movable Inc. If you're listening to me, you probably even interacted with his company and didn't even know it. You'll get an email, nice little image in the center or big image in the center, and you think that that's the same image that everyone else is getting. But behind the scenes, his company, Movable Inc., is actually customizing that image. And that business, that concept has really taken off for him, which I feel really happy for you about because I had no idea how much trouble you went through to get here, how many businesses you either did the wrong thing on or you did everything right, everything was told to do, and it still failed. And I use failure because you use the word failure. I think a lot of entrepreneurs are uptight about it, but you're smiling as I say this because look at where it got you. All right, we're going to find out how he got here thanks to two phenomenal sponsors. The first, if you want your hosting done right, if you're starting a new company or transitioning your current company, your current website to a new company and get it hosted right, go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy. And the second, I used to hate my inbox, but I've got Sanity in there. Sanebox is doing it for me. If you want some organization, if you want to make it easier to respond to your email, go to sanebox.com slash Mixergy. They'll let you use it for free. But Vic, I'm going to talk about those later. First, I got to find out about you. Good to have you here, man. Great to be here, Andrew. I used to listen to your podcast in the early days. This is like late 2010, 2011. So- I don't know Let me you see get- what you were working on back then. 2010. Oh, was- so this is Movable Ink days. Yeah, that was early Movable Ink. You know, we'd, we'd gotten our start back then. How long do you think it's going to be before you go public? We're, we're, we're on a track. We're You're on a track. A, we're on a track, yeah. Do you, so, think, uh, do you think COVID will clear up enough that you will, if you, that you'll get to go to the, to the exchange and stand up and get your whole experience? Yeah, the process apparently looks very different. It's amazing to hear about these virtual roadshows and people, it still goes on. You know, many companies went public last year during COVID. SaaS companies have done quite well. When when you look out there, there's been an acknowledgement that digital transformation, you know, it's it's hitting every business and they've got to come come to terms with it. And SaaS companies, predictable revenue, recurring revenue, that's all great stuff. And the the multiples are eye-popping these days. Let's give people a use case and then talk about what you're doing right now and then go back in time. And maybe we can start off with what happened at Metro Spark and continue your story from there. But you're telling me before we got started about how Barnes & Noble uses you. What is Barnes & Noble doing? Yeah, sure. So people don't experience data, they experience content. So Movablelink basically activates any data into real-time personalized content at the moment of customer engagement. So we, we've been working with Barnes & Noble for a number of years. In fact, we do an annual uh, conference and we rethought it last year. So it was called Rethink Summit rather than our regular Think Summit. And Josh Selman, who's a director there, Barnes & Noble has a very successful bricks and mortar business. They've been doing e-commerce for a number of years, but all of that accelerated 
with the pandemic. COVID-19 hits and suddenly there's a surge in online traffic, but there's a lot of people who still want to buy things in the store. And so what we enabled them to do was to power real-time content inside their email marketing. So you get an email, you open it up, and the email can tell you about a Barnes & Noble close to you. It can share changing store hours. There's also a strategy they were able to employ with great effect called BOPIS. This is an acronym that's well-known in the retail world, and BOPIS stands for Buy Online, Pick Up In-Store. And you can imagine the changing conditions. Stores are closing, opening, inventories out, supply chains disrupted. So all this fast, real-time moving data, it's hard for a marketing program to keep up with, especially when it's been planned weeks in advance. So we've been able to help them pivot on a dime and be able to engage their customers and give them some great reading as they, as they shelter up. And so if I wanted to get a book from Barnes & Noble, I, I'd open up their email and they would show me a book that is, I guess, relevant to me, but more importantly, is available at the local Barnes & Noble. So if I decided to add it to my cart, I could drive over to Barnes & Noble and pick it up. And that's the difference. That's right. And, and the, the fact that Bopis is available, if the store hours are shifting for these fast reasons, you get that updated information. So if you open that email yeah. after or three hours after, it's always current, it's up to date. And you know that availability will be there when you show and, up to the And that's with an image. I can see the cover of the book. I get it. I see how you are. Let's talk about a painful experience. It all started, I feel like, well, it all started with a paper route. But if we were to fast forward a little bit, it started with MetroSpark. What was MetroSpark? Yeah. So back, uh, I, I'd, I'd been in Silicon Valley right after school. I grew up in Massachusetts, went out there, uh, got the bug, saw how startups were built. And this is around 2003. I spent a little bit of time in Japan and a little bit in England for the, for the company Blue Martini Software that I worked with years ago. And th this sounds ancient, but people in the US weren't using mobile phones and really you had all these feature phones and people were text messaging. And we figured mobile was going to be this big thing and uh, Friendster had happened. And I think this is pre-MySpace. So basically we were trying to build a mobile social network back in 2003. It sounds like this was before everyone had exactly the same idea. So there were a very small number of companies doing this. And we rushed into it. I was an engineer. We tried to engineer a solution. And uh, you can very few phones supported the kinds of things we want to do. So if you had a Palm Treo or a Nokia phone, uh, a yep. 60, that was like the dream phone. You could have this experience of having a, a Bluetooth personal network and identification if your friends were nearby. And it was an MIT Media Lab pro project that we huh. were trying to commercialize. Wait, you could tell me if my friends are nearby through Bluetooth? Bluetooth can barely go from one room to the other. How can you tell me if my friends are outside of the coffee shop I'm in? You'd actually be surprised. Bluetooth can have a range of up to two miles, depending on the antenna and the signal that you're sending out. Wow. So, yeah. So uh, you can scan for MAC addresses from a phone like that. And uh, if that's associated with your account, you can have serendipitous encounters. In fact, in, at MIT Media Lab, this project that it was called Serendipity, it was about Bluetooth scans and creating proximity networks and predictions about who you hang out with and that sort of thing. So we massively over-engineered a thing, uh, failed to get customers and spent three and a half very painful years trying to make a thing happen like this and uh, eventually threw in the towel You know, four years in. I'm on the site right now, and I like how I could have received text messages telling me where, or I guess mobile notifications, tell me where my friends were. So really, this was way ahead of its time. 
when you say when you say over engineered, talk talk about some of the mistakes that you made there and what you could have done differently. Yeah, no, number one thing. I mean, this is kind of common knowledge for anyone starting a company today. There was no one had ever heard of lean startup or get out of the building mm-hmm. or. Steve Blank wasn't no one. No one knew him unless I guess you worked at Epiphany, but yeah, all the classic mistakes. We thought we had the right answers. We thought we we had a beautiful solution looking for a problem, right? And and so we had we had engineered something that was based on our own behavior and uh, people we knew that would find these connections, make connections. But we never really thought about how to acquire an audience. How do you get someone to sign up? What's that new user experience look like? We didn't get out of the building. We didn't validate and we didn't solve one critical problem for our customers. I don't know. It seems like you did. Don't they have the problem of, I want to know where my friends are. Maybe I could pop. Well, maybe they don't actually. You know what? It's a nice to know, but you're now that I say it out loud, I realize no, I, I never have the problem of where my friends right now and how oh, do I hang out with them? Yeah, there's nuances. Like Foursquare got some stuff right about the single user utility of checking right. tracking places. You know, Tinder's got a dating angle. So you, you you can't just have a general utility. You've got to really think about the problem. What is this enabling for people? And more importantly, the technology back then, just if you wanted to set this up, we had, I think, 80 different J2ME builds. That you would you would have to install and go through your setting screen and open up a socket connector. Uh, yeah. So the user experience was poor, and we just didn't quit and we kept going. And man, it was painful, painful. When you uh, finally gave it up, did it feel like a relief or did you feel like a failure for having failed at this? Both. Um, when you're when you're when you're, you know, I, I kind of describe it as an entrepreneur. You don't know if you are. You've been spending years on something, and you're just really close to cracking it, yeah. and you solved it. Or if you're if you play poker, if you're on tilt, right? You, you've completely lost sense of reality, and you're chasing this thing that isn't really there. And so it's it's hard to know sometimes. And uh, I think the indicator for us was just years and years of like lack of traction. And I was disappointed in myself for failing to you know me and my co-founders to to, to turn this into something. And uh, I think a lot of failed entrepreneurs go through this. If you've gone through this the first time of like uh, soul searching and purgatory and what did I do wrong? And am I really cut out to be starting a company? Is this yeah. wrong? Other people have some special quality that yeah. lets them do this. And I don't have that it factor, maybe. Yeah. How did you get past it? Uh, well, after some of the soul searching, I... Uh, I introspected. I said, look, I think I want to start something again in the future. And what went wrong? I didn't know how to get customers. So let me focus on that. Let me do the scariest thing I can think of. Let me get a sales job at a company. Ah. And you know, this is from someone who I'd been writing code and deep code, backend code, server-side code, you name it. Didn't know what a lead was. Didn't know what an opportunity was. What is a prospect? What is all this language? Didn't. And uh, luckily, I found a company... Uh, talked to the founders, who was a managed hosting uh, provider for Ruby on Rails applications, convinced the founders to hire me. And I was like, wow, I can't believe I got the job. And then I was a second salesperson. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm going to be found out in month one, month two. And you are completely swimming in the deep end of the pool. You've never sw- sw- swam before. And you start to, you know, little pieces come together. But even month four, month five, I'm like, this is just, I've been faking it for this long. It's all going to come fall apart. 
and you never really have certainty at some point you're like statistically hey this has been 5 months i've done this okay and i'm closing deals and i'm bringing in business and uh, basically over the 2 years that i was there i brought in 4.2 million dollars in annual recurring revenue for the company what did you learn how did you how were you able to do that uh, one it was a good product you know people needed this thing ruby on rails applications uh, rails was taking off so i found this company interesting because they you know they weren't 37 signals they weren't working on rails but i thought that being around that ecosystem would be good uh so it was a good product people had a real need and i was technical enough to be able to talk about the attributes of our service and what was good about it and uh and so i could lean and pull from a strength that i had that an average salesperson who wasn't technical probably couldn't have uh so that was the big and you know that was my I didn't know it coming in, but I ended up learning a lot about sales and uh, you know getting things right, getting things wrong, and just the pace. And eventually, I learned that wasn't doing a full time sales gig wasn't for me. I learned enough from what I got. But what you went in there for was to learn how to talk to customers, and it seems like just having that structure in place that forced you to go to talk to customers brought that out of you. I wonder if you were also able to. I mentioned earlier the the paper route. I wonder if you were able to draw on what you learned from there. Yeah, I mean, a paper. I don't even know if people have this job anymore. No, they don't. Yeah, so you know, I was a kid in Massachusetts, uh, and this is like the job you get when you're uh, when you're when you're a kid. And uh, it was funny. I think it was uh, both the Boston Globe and the Lowell Sun I delivered, and uh, one of them. And this is such a now I think back, what a clever or maybe slightly evil cash flow management uh, thing where you had to buy the newspapers from the company. And you go deliver them, and you have to do your collections at the end of a week. And if someone's not there, you got to catch them on Saturday. So you're floating the company; uh, they've already got their money, and you've got to go collect it back and hopefully get some tips. So I learned about, uh, you know, you, you have to, you have to do the job. It doesn't mean, matter if there's two feet of snow on the ground. It doesn't matter if it's icy, if it's hot. Uh, there's a job that needs to get done, and. Uh, this, this is what it takes. And that involves, it seems like the hardest part of that job is throwing the newspaper. Getting up early and throwing the newspaper is hard, but the more I find out about it, the more I realize, no, it's going and knocking on people's doors and saying, you have to pay for the paper. That people who, I mean, it, it's, I don't know who set this up, but it seems like the most unfair way to do things. The, the newspaper has the ability to charge a credit card. They should just charge it and you know do it month after month. But instead, they're sending these kids around to be their collection agents. But yeah, I mean, the throwing thing. I think that's just for like the movies where they do that. So you know, you either get it in the newspaper box, or some people want mm -hmm. it. They preference they want it in the door between the glass door. And I still remember collecting uh, two dollars and ninety cents, and it really ticked me off when someone would give you exactly the two dollars ninety cents. You know, a three dollars is a pretty cheap tip, but yeah. Two people who don't tip at all. I'm reading the book, uh, A Man for All Markets about Edward Thorpe, the guy who figured out how to beat the casino at a few games. He's best known for beating it for blackjack. And then he became this uh, hedge fund manager, did incredibly well for himself. I think he started out the same way. And that's how I discovered the details of what it's like to go get up early and collect and get up early, get the newspaper delivered and then collect money. Boy, that was agony, but all right. Money so management, operational, you know, <laughs> you balancing your book, all of that stuff. Do you do it for money or did you do it because why, why did you do it as a kid? Oh, I, I, I'm i uh, I'm an immigrant. I, I moved to the U S when I was eight. And so my Indian parents 
they they just didn't get the idea of an allowance. They're like, hey, you're a member of the family. You have to rake the leaves. You have to yeah. uh, chop the wood. You have to shovel the snow, do all this stuff. It's like, get a job if you want to make some money to, to be able to buy stuff. So I wanted Nintendo games. My my brother did too. And we we kind of pooled our money together. And that was probably the big purchase we'd save up for Nintendo games. Do you have kids now? Do you make them work? I do have kids. Uh, one is nine and one is almost seven. Uh, they don't have the, well, we're in New York city, so I don't think there's a lot of paper routes no. happening here. And they're probably a little bit young, uh, but they, but they earn, they earn allowances for, for things, for things they do. Mine are even younger than yours. And I think I've got to get them in the habit of, first of all, doing stuff around the house. And second, go out and get a job of some kind. My dad had his friends. He, he manufactures women's clothing. He would tell his friends whose store, who ran stores, hire my kid. I'll even pay you. But I want him to be in a place where he's safe. Have him, I don't know, take alarms off of clothes or put him on clothes in the basement or whatever, but do it. I need to do that. I need friends with stores that can hire my kids. Yeah, right. uh, it's a great idea. You, you learn so much by doing a real job. Even when I was in college, uh, there's the classes you go to. But when I first did my, did my first internship, it gave me a real taste of what working in the real world was like. And it's quite different than uh, what you're learning in in the classroom. Because your teacher will also put up with a lot of bull, but your boss at a store where they count on every sale, they're not going to put up with any of that nonsense. You got to like look right. You got to handle yourself well. All right. So close up the company, get a job. You learn a lot from the job. Time to go out there and start something new. One of the things that you learned for the new company was shack testing. You got to tell people what shack testing is. I never heard of it before you. Yeah. So I got clued into this. I hope I'm not giving away some great secret uh, but it was uh, it was an executive at Meetup about the early days of how uh, they would validate ideas. And uh, back then, I think this is like 2008, 2009, I was kind of hanging out in the, the New York City startup scene. There was only one Shake Shack in the world, and that was in uh, Madison Square Park. And it was delicious. And it was the longest line you can ever imagine. And uh, there, there was a Shack cam. You can go to their website and see how long the line is. Uh, so people would wait in line. Uh, waiting to order their burger. And he clued me in, into this uh, UX, UI validation method where you go up to someone in line, you have a partner, and you say, hey, my partner will stand in line for you and we'll order it, we'll pay for your food. And if you'll sit with us for 10, 15 minutes and give us some feedback on some of these, uh, some of these mock-ups and these UI screens, and pretty much everyone would take him up on that. So he's like, yeah, we call it shack testing. And I thought that was brilliant. Who's going to say no to that? What a great idea. I would do that. Just give me something to do. All right. And so you start to understand lean startup methodology. You read four steps to the epiphany. You're really ready to get uh, feedback. What's the idea that you used all of these lean startup techniques on? Yeah, I'll say you can learn all that stuff and still fail. So <laughs> the precursor to move blank, we worked on this company called Market IO, reading lean startup, reading Steve Blank, knowing all this stuff. And uh, long story short, it was a syndicated e-commerce idea. So if uh, you're an online merchant selling t-shirts, maybe someone could sell cross-sell merchandise like uh, belts and shoes on one site and have a seamless checkout. Uh, spent eight intense, grueling months on it. The idea failed. I'm glad we learned within eight months and we didn't string this out for like three or four years. But uh, Michael, who joined about halfway through this, Wait, before we take before we take that, you he's somebody who you ended up continuing with. But I'm on an early version of the site. I like how I could list on Shopify. You're ahead with them on Magento on Yahoo Stores. It makes a lot of sense. 
why didn't it work out? What's the feedback that you got? And then why didn't it work out? Yeah, this is the uh, marketplace dynamic. There's two things. One, it is very technically challenging to make a seamless order. Uh, and I should have known this. I'd built e-commerce software in the past, but uh, doing joint orders from different merchants, different shipment lines, shipping costs, return policies, there's all of that craziness. And then frankly, if you are an online retailer that can attract an audience and you're selling shirts and you know shirts and uh, trousers and things like that, uh, you're not as motivated to cross-sell and build an audience for someone else to, to lose that dollar share, that wallet share to another merchant. And let's say you were successful and that was working out for you, you're quite you're gonna take that information and source your own and start to introduce your own product lines. So there were a lot so, of sorry. So the idea was I as a consumer go to a t-shirt store, I buy a shirt from them, and then at some point they're cross-selling me pants that I might want to buy too. From another merchant. From another merchant. And you were thinking, hey, let's do that. And yep. And we would try to connect these merchants. And I remember going way deep into Brooklyn. And uh, it was like a B&H online equivalent that had every single product because we needed big product catalogs mm-hmm. uh, to be able to feed into these cross-sell algorithms. Uh, so we did that. Uh, we did it. We finally said, this is not working. Maybe we run it as a display ad, make it kind of shoppable commerce. Mm-hmm. We ran a unit on Squidoo, I think, Seth Godin's thing. Yeah. And we were like, oh my God, this is awesome. There's like hundreds of thousands, millions of impressions. Uh, we're going to be rolling in it. And it is so disheartening to see how few people click and even fewer converted out of that. And that was the death knell. I still remember seeing all the data come in. We had this real-time visualization of, of the very few orders. And we're like, this is not going to work. This, you know, eight months in, this business is dead. And that's the night we came up with a movable ink idea. What was it about your feedback process that led you to believe this would work? And was it wrong? Yeah, you know, marketplaces were something that was really interesting to us and uh, seeing e-commerce take off. I think we underestimated the technical complexity of making the stuff work seamlessly. Um, multiple merchant shipment lines, you know, that was probably the single biggest challenge around this idea. And it's funny because in the years since, I've run into a company or two that is tackling that same idea in a, and, you know, I, I, if they can shift something, if they can make some of this uh, change, maybe the same logistical backend, API integrations, uh, potentially that could work. But uh, it was about finding the balance between buyer and seller in our marketplace. And maybe we could have been more tailored somewhere. And uh, it just, it, there could have been something there. We just didn't feel the level of effort it would take would be worth the uh, the return we'd get on that idea. Okay. All right. And now instead of three years working on a project, it was eight months. You learned you didn't sacrifice the other two plus years. So some progress before we get into movable ink, let me just tell you about my first sponsor. And then I want to come back into the story. My first sponsor is Sanebox. Who does your email? Do you sit down still and go through all your email, Vivek? Yeah. I use superhuman for my email client. So I do too. But then don't you end up with like every freaking thing you buy triggers a sequence of messages from the company that you buy it from. I get my kids into school. They have apps that now send me messages. It was just overwhelming. Do you have that? No. No. I mean, uh, I, I guess I'm thinking about my business account, my business email. I try to keep myself out of the flow. I try not to own the things that I don't need to own. 
So if you do that, you know the emails are going to go to someone else. And uh, for work, for internal communications, we're using Slack. For business communications, email. But I think I've just been uh, really organized in who and how I communicate on the business side. And then you know, there's me as a consumer uh, and and the, the the websites I like, the services I like, and I uh, look for them. Right? They're, they're they're emails I look forward to. So my problem was that I was uh, because I'm a podcaster. And I've been doing this now for 10 years. I get a lot of email from people that it's just overwhelming. And I was missing things because I was getting spam messages from people. Anyone who wants to be on a podcast for some reason has to email me. And so then it's their messages. And then I try out a lot of my guests software. And so there's that message. And then it's years of being on all my audience. I just got one from someone who I talked to years ago. 10 years ago, I interviewed him. He just reactivated his mailing list and he said, sorry, but I'm going to reach out to you again. And I was happy. I was happy to hear from him. Anyway, what I did was I signed up for SaneBox. SaneBox learns how I want my messages handled and then it does it. So for example, anything that comes from my kid's school, I want to get into my inbox. But if it comes from the message board of my kid's school, Vivek, these people are, they're two different schools. Some of them, it's a little nutty here. In San Francisco, the schools are getting renamed. So there are all these messages going back and forth about like, should Alvarado be renamed or not? Which Alvarado was it named after? The mean guy or the non-mean guy? Was the mean guy really mean? So there's like all this anger. That just gets filed away. Brooklyn's probably the same way. Are you guys doing it there too? We're not doing that, but like all the school messages and uh, parents and uh, forums, luckily my wife runs interference on that a little bit, but yeah, volume. One of the other schools is private school. These people are, I know what they're paying for school. They still will have this whole sequence of messages that goes out about how we have rain pants available for anyone who wants it because our kid outgrew it. Rain pants are like 20 bucks. Reuse rain packs are like five bucks, but we've got a whole message. Anyway, I don't want to lose this stuff. I just want to file the way nicely. What SaneBox does is it just organizes it. When I have patients to go in and look at the school stuff, it's all categorized and I can go and look at the school stuff. When I have patients to look at all my, my chess.com stuff, because I'm obsessed with chess.com right now. That's organized for me there too. That's the idea behind SaneBox. Makes your email that much more usable. If you're out there listening to me and you want to experience this for yourself, I'm going to let you try it for free. Just go with whatever software you use. We both use um, Superhuman. Anything that you use, except for Hey. Hey.com is a whole other world. I, I use them too and I love them. But for everything else, they will organize you right. Go to SaneBox.com slash Mixergy. S-A-N-E-B-O-X.com slash Mixergy. Hey, I talk too fast because I'm a New Yorker. You're you're from Brooklyn or you're in Brooklyn. How do you not talk so fast? I think you're catching me at 534 on a <laughs> board meeting. So it's been uh it's it's been uh quite a few six weeks. This the kickoff here. All right. Um let's get tail end of the day. I feel like you also there's stuff going on that you you're excited to talk about, you want to talk to me about, but I understand that we can't talk about it, and so I'm not gonna pry it. But it, but it seems like good things are happening right now for Movable Inc. All right, so Movable Inc. Where did the idea come from? Yeah, so out of the ashes of that failed idea with Market IO, uh, we we ha- I had this co-founder Paul. Paul brought in. Uh, we we needed to do more engineering work, so Michael Nutt, my Movable Inc. co-founder, joined. And so that evening, complete failure. The display unit fails. Doesn't do what it's supposed to. So I was interested in email. Funny you mentioned Sandbox, but uh, after having been burned by doing a mobile startup too early in 2003, I'm like, screw this. I don't want to spend all this effort on some new bleeding edge thing that isn't quite there. So I said, email. Email is kind of interesting. 
right? It's been around forever from like the 70s. It's at a protocol level. And I bet you there's some opportunities here to do uh, more meaningful things. And you know, Michael and I got to talking and uh, there's some technical insights Michael brought to the table about being able to dynamically change an image in an email after the moment it's opened. So we're like, wow, that's interesting. I didn't think that was even possible. And we start digging into it and, you know, kind of the engineering light bulbs in my head pop and Michael and I talk and, you know, you, you realize, wow, with the, uh, you know, with IP address, you could probably geolocate someone in the user agent. You might be mm. able to put someone on an iPhone or an Android phone. And uh, what if you change the, you know, what, what images behind the scenes uh, after the fact, it looks like magic. You know, uh, early on, one of the one of one of the other startups at General Assembly called us the uh, Harry Potter for email. So w- we were like, "This is kind of interesting." And I stayed up till three, four a.m. that night, excited, writing down all the different industries and the use cases and the kinds of things. And I validate with Michael, and you know, we did it the right way. We we went out there with uh, PowerPoint instead of a fully baked product and a duct tape. Like Michael built the first version over a weekend. And I had built a PowerPoint over the weekend, and that's what we started going out there and testing. Who'd you talk to? So back then, our theory was that the big companies would be really hard to get into. You know, I, I'd sold to startups before and fast-moving tech companies. We said, you know, let's try to get uh, tech star startups. There was a company called Star Street Sports that was an early user. Uh, there was an uh, that, that was the time, if you remember, way back early to twenty uh, tens. The email newsletter companies. So Daily Candy was an early client. Yeah. There were the Daily Deal sites. There was a the Russia's biggest Daily Deal site called Coopy Coupon. Uh, somehow found us and ended up using us. And it was just this random collection. Scoop Street, I think, used us for a while. It's random collection of companies. We pitched this to, and you know, there was a flash sale example of you know a countdown timer ticking down and swapping out the, the product that you're seeing, or a daily deal thing showing you uh, social proofing. 55 people have bought this product, and there's like two hours left. And so we I came up with- I still feel all- like that's magic. I know I've seen that, but not enough to, to feel jaded about it. It still feels like, wow, I will still sometimes like right-click on the image or go in and try to figure out how they did it. It's- it's still per, it's still incredibly, if not uncommon, then just not something that I notice enough to say, oh, there's another one of those. It feels like, wow, this this is pretty impressive that they did it. But your original your original set of potential customers that you talked to were who? Who did you talk to and show the PowerPoint to? It, it, it was it was companies like this, and we would hit up anyone in our network. We would talk to VCs that had passed on us on the original idea, and get them to introduce us to. Uh, to companies, we, we were shameless about anyone who would take a meeting. We were so happy to, uh, and ah. if we were meeting, we would prep like crazy to not uh, fall on our face. And uh, in fact, I, I remember weeks where I'd have like 12, 15 meetings and I'd come out of a meeting, I'd have some feedback on the deck, I'd change it on the fly, tweak it, go into the next meeting and uh, literally iterate. And one meeting I remember with Daily Candy, Michael joined me on this one. Uh, had a good conversation, and the uh, the marketing manager said, "Hey, this is kind of cool. Could the product do X?" Uh, and I forget what the feature. And Michael and I both look at each other, and we have literally a, a thirty second conversation. We're like, "Yeah, that that makes sense. We can do that in the product." And and I could literally see her head spinning. She's like, "Did you just decide to change yeah. the product within?" And we didn't think it was a big deal. It was like that's how startups do it. 
And now with a 330 person company with a very organized product management practices for good reasons, we realize how crazy that sounds to be able to on, on, on a whim, uh, decide what new features a product should have. So if I, what, if I'm understanding you, right, you decided I'm not going for SMBs. I'm going to the professional marketers. I wonder why, why didn't you say we're going to be like, um, like MailChimp, but with this extra feature, why did you go after higher end customers? You know, we, we, we tried everything, but we, we realized the pricing model would probably the larger, slightly larger companies would value this more. So mid-market might have been the sweet spot for us. So if there's some decent email volume, we wanted a team that could buy us, be flexible, and the Byzantine things you might have to do with an enterprise and infosec and legal work and everything that is far more streamlined, but there's meaningful email volume on the other side that it, uh, you know, early on, it was like we, we had a pricing page, uh, you know, free $5 a month, $10 a month, $30 a month, that sort of thing. And we were hoping this would be so brilliant. A marketer would see it, adopt it. It'd be a touchless sale and boom, yeah. business takes off. That did not happen. And for 18 months, we got some clients to come in, use it, kick the tires, get in the product, and they'd all churn out. And a couple of big things we realized. Uh, we were selling to the wrong audience. Uh, that was the first thing. And the second thing was people didn't quite know how to use this, right? Nobody could, they, they were sending their emails out, doing their segmentation uh, and, and, and thinking about their list and time of send. But it's kind of a weird new thing that, hey, I'm going to build dynamic content inside an email that's going to change on the fly. And it just wasn't a priority. And we had, to, we had to share our ideas and coach them on how to use this effectively. So the big switch happened. Uh, this is, I think, the end of 2011. We're grinding it away. I think our monthly recurring revenue at that point was about three hundred dollars. Uh, we had not raised uh, any capital, and my wife was like, "This is like startup number two, three maybe, three. looking like it might fail." She's like, "You gotta, you gotta like raise some money or something by the end of the year, or get a real job." And so that kind of lit um, lit a fire under me. And basically, we were on a on a cheap vacation at the end of the year. And I got our first angel investor on the phone closed literally with like, you know, a couple of days left in the year. Who was the first angel? Uh, there were these, uh, uh, Amr and Amr, Amr Rahman and Amr Abdullah were two angel investors here in New York. And I still remember them way back. And I'm so grateful for them that they, uh, they, they, they liked the idea and put 50 K in. And I thought that was, Oh my God, mind blowing that we've got the first money in, and it's, it was like one piece at a time. It was the first piece of validation. One of the things that I saw that you did in the beginning was you had a signature for email that would plug in people's latest tweet or something and send it out on the bottom of their Gmail email. I'm guessing what you were thinking was, let's get some virality. Let's get people to know who we are. Did that work? Yeah, it's funny. You, you did your homework. Um, the, the business could have gone in two different directions. So we said, look, we got an interesting product here. We can change emails after they're sent. Do we build a B2B product with this and sell it to sales departments? And there's a centralized marketing control that the salesperson can say, here are the events we're going to be at. The engineering team can update it on the fly and say, here's the open source uh, latest contribution that we've made. 
And so we were testing that out and we, we, we said, let's give away this free Twitter signature. Anyone can, anyone can download. Uh, and so we had some people set it up and we thought that would go viral, right? Kind of the hotmail style thing. People are sending emails to each other with a live Twitter signature. And, you know, we had some people use it and try it, but it never really went viral. And as it turns out, that B2B idea, we didn't think would be as, we, we, we netted out that it wouldn't be as big as the selling to the brands, marketing to lots of consumers. But Brian Wade, who was at Exact Target years later, started uh, or came in as CEO of a company that did exactly that called Sigster. So it's funny how ideas come around multiple times. Hey, Andrew, I can't hear you. I think you might be on mute. Ah, uh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> That's the phrase of 2021 and 2020. I'm looking at the first version or one of the early versions of your site. You had a free version. As long as people were willing to put the movable ink watermark, the logo on their site, they could use they could use you for free for a few emails, right? Yeah. We thought that was like a marketing strategy. If we can create some awareness and other people, if we could build a network, yeah. you know, a little bit of the engineer in me, like you're you're trying to be lazy. And if you can create something awesome, and then it magically takes off and it's through the roof. That's wonderful. But it didn't turn out to be like that. And I'm, I'm kind of grateful because we've gone on to do more meaningful things because of the road we went down. And the road is instead of going SMB, uh, self-serve, it became this enterprise tool. And enterprise is, enterprise is better because... Enterprise is better because they have scale. They have an existing email marketing program, and maybe they've uh, kind of created all the value they can with the things that they're already doing. So it's that's a surprising thing. I, my advice to startups be don't be afraid of the enterprise. Uh, I know that InfoSec and everything's gotten tougher in the last several years, but uh, you get the right audience and they're really into it. And they were like, they, they want to stand out from their peers. And, and if they're sending out 20, 30 million emails, if there's something that you're bringing to them, that's a lot of scale that could uh, create more value and stand out from the competition. So enterprises ended up being absolutely the, the place we should focus. And we completely stopped doing small and mid-market, small business and mid-market. And it changes the model. It changes the tenor of the company and who you hire and how you're able to service larger accounts like that. Be more hands-on. That's the other thing. We have to be hands-on and bring them our ideas, which you can't do constantly with a $20 a month account. Someone's got their credit card down. It's very personal for them. Yeah. Uh, money, but an enterprise can invest in, often they have innovation budgets too. Right. That's something I've discovered that they actually have a budget mm -hmm. to go and try some random stuff. And in many ways, from what I understand from friends who've been selling to enterprise through that innovation budget, they they don't need data to show that it works. In fact, they prefer no data so that they don't go back to their boss and say, this is a failure. Instead, they want to say, this is an exciting thing that we're trying out. Did you find that too? Yeah. We didn't know about budgets and which budget and what budget and how, how this all works. I think it's brilliant that enterprise, enterprise included, I don't know when it started, but uh, way back when I was at Blue Martini, that didn't seem like a thing. But I think it's this observation that there are the known problems that they have, but technology is moving so fast and there's such great tools that are coming up that they need some room to be able to experiment and a budget created to yeah. freedom to, for departments to do just that. And um, you know, I think that kind of opened the door. And I, I still remember, uh, I, I can't name the client, but we had a large financial services client in Southern Manhattan. And the first meeting we went in there, 
uh, our sales guy goes in with a movable link t-shirt. That's it. And at least I had a sport coat. I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? And 12 people showed up to our first meeting and we were walked in by an, a large email service provider and it completely changed our perspective, the interest that they had in what we were doing and, and, and uh, what we could potentially do for them. And, you know, that was, uh, that was eye-opening. And we, when you see a couple pieces of evidence like that, as an entrepreneur, you know, I always liken it to a circuit. Uh, if there's 10 switches in a circuit, one of those switches is flipped the other way. The whole thing doesn't work and you don't know why. So your job is to identify all those switches and solve for each one of them. And at some point, it's beautiful when it connects <laughs> and the whole thing just works. And then you squeeze the, the heck out of it and you do a lot more of the thing that works. And that took you at least 18 months. Daily Candy didn't survive. I'm going to come back in a moment and ask you follow-up questions about those two situations. First, mm -hmm. real quick, if you're listening to me, you already know my site is hosted on HostGator. If you're not hosted on HostGator, I urge you to switch over to them because they'll give you a great low price service that just works and you'll be able to move on with your business. That's what I did. I went to HostGator.com slash Mixergy. HostGator.com slash Mixergy. Daily Candy, why did they stop working with you? What happened? Man, there's so many companies, uh, the memory, I, I can tell you about uh, another company, Fandango, that we worked with. Uh -huh. uh, this was really on us. We, we got a really good shot. Fandango, uh, for those who aren't familiar, basically allowed you to buy movie tickets to theaters all over the place. And so we thought this is brilliant. What a great way to, uh, you know, information's changing, what movies are showing, showtimes, uh, concessions, et cetera, et cetera. So great idea. We ran the campaign and our technology fell over. Uh, we were sitting there all grouped up into a room and it was the worst feeling in the world when basically we made their email campaign not work and broken images inside. Oh, wow. They used you for a, a big collection of their send. subscribers? Big send and people were really, and she was not happy. Our, our marketing contact, rightly, right? We were, we were the scrappy startup and something we had made a mistake in the code and it broke. And so... Basically, I, I went back hat in hand and begged for a chance for another, apologized profusely, identify the root cause, wrote up an email uh, and, and fought. And we got a shot, a second shot. And the movie was Puss in Boots, I, I, I remember. It's funny how you remember all these crazy things from like nine, 10 years ago. And, and this time it worked. Unfortunately, they were looking for a lift. They were doing a holdout and it didn't yield uh, a greater lift in performance. So... We got lots of shots and that was the exper experimentation that happened. What use cases are valuable? Which industry wants to do what kind of thing? What's a strategic initiative? And we tried lots of different things. Some of them worked, some didn't. And you know, little piece by little piece, it starts to shape together. Uh, at, and at some point you end up with a playbook of like really good ideas. What was for, working and what wasn't? In that 18 months, what did you learn? I, I will say there's one idea without fail, every company sees and they're like, this is amazing. We got to do this in our emails. And that is the countdown timer. In fact, when we were at General Assembly, Diddy, the, 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 the rapper, the impresario, yep. he had an agency and uh, the, the, the person who is running his agency is like, yeah, Diddy loves countdown timers. He, he loves counting down to New Year's. And so we're like, great. And so every single company wanted to do this idea, but it, almost never yielded 
um, lift, right? There's the things that have the sizzle and the, 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 there's the things that will perform. And that was the idea that somehow visually everyone gravitated to, they could understand, but we had to peel them away from that and say, let's do more meaningful things. Um, and today, a lot of it is about taking the APIs and the data that, that you have in your platforms and em enabling them with your key strategic ideas. And so they wanted the timer. Did you create the countdown because that's what they wanted and sell them the sizzle that they want, but give them the steak that you knew that they needed yeah, to justify we, it? You did. We would try to do that, which is uh, the more trivial ideas. We'd say, okay, we'll do this. We don't think it's going to uh, drive what you want, but will you commit to doing some of these other things with us as well? Okay. So without fail, you'd, you'd run into that. Over and over. then what of all those other ideas did actually get them the lift that got them to return? Yeah, the, the big change happened maybe six, seven years ago was us realizing companies have invested in tons of other technologies. They are, they've got loyalty systems like CrowdTwist, they've got inventory management systems, they've got recommendation engines, uh, you name it, they've got data you know, for marketers, CSV files are passing out Excel sheets everywhere. So we built a platform that could ingest any of this data. In fact, a couple of years ago, we launched something called a movable link exchange. And we've got a really robust partner program with 160 companies, every tech vendor you can think of. And it was about taking those meaningful pieces of data that in the past had only been used for segmentation or something else like that to actually drive personalized content inside their emails. So they've already bought these systems. They're bought in. There's a big strategic initiative. There's a loyalty program that we're running for them. And these types of things ended up being transformative and driving lots of revenue and, and real value to the business. Can you give me an example of how someone might use that? Yep. Uh, so <clears throat> there's three types of data. You, you open an email. Uh, there's contextual factors that an email could change. So it's snowing outside or it's sunny over here, or you're in Alaska versus Florida. So we, we, can, we can change content based on that. That's that's interesting, but maybe not the world-changing thing. There's behavioral content we can also power. So we understand what's happening on the website. So if you've abandoned a search or a basket, a banner could pop up in your email saying, uh, continue to pick up where you left off or here are the items you were searching for. That's proven really effective. But the last piece, uh, loyalty point balance, right? We're calling it an API, a first-party API or a crowd twist system. And it's got their loyalty tier status, how many points that they have, how many they will have to earn to be at the next level. And it's a completely personalized email. And they never would have been able to pull something like this off before a move blank, right? Where millions of people are getting millions of unique emails. We talked earlier about how email is an open protocol. Mm -hmm. And then one day you discovered that Gmail made this big change. What was the change that they made and what happened? Yeah. Ooh. I think we were always aware that it's it can be dangerous to play uh, share crop on somebody else's technology. So all the all the clients that built on built on Twitter learned that the hard way. So we're, we're like, oh, we're smart. We built on email. Email's a protocol; it's never going away. There's tons of different ISPs like like a Gmail or a Yahoo Mail. However, one day we woke up, and this is I think a few maybe a week after Black Friday. And suddenly our emails stopped working. Uh, the, the content wasn't loading or, or it was stuck. There'd be one version and it wouldn't change after the fact. And there was nothing, no indicator from Google. And we do a ton of detective work. And it turns out that Google had um, finally pub published a blog post and they started caching content. So every single, every single Gmail client for that one piece of content would see the one cached version. 
and they were doing this for privacy and security. That, that was the argument. So this was bad. This was really bad for our business. And this happened like six years ago. And every ESP we talked to, Cheetah Digital, Exact Target, everyone's like, you can't convince the ISPs, especially Google, to change anything. So months, you know, we're like, we're going to be fine. Our business is going to be fine. But no, this was an existential threat. And our um, head of client, today's head of client strategy, somehow she knows every single person on the planet. She networked her way, found a product manager at Google who was willing to take a 15-minute meeting with me and Michael. So Michael and I built the ugliest sales deck that you've ever seen. Intentionally ugly. Intentionally ugly because we're like, this. hopefully this will be shared with the engineers where we put forth our case and offer a technical solution that lets them protect privacy and security while allowing a better end user experience. And we made it ugly because we said, if we make this look too pretty, it feels salesy, it feels it'll turn them off. And little did we know, you know, some radio silence and we talked to this product manager. A couple months later, he's going to be at this conference called MOG, the Messaging Anti-Abuse Working Group. I get a membership to MOG. I fly out to San Francisco, also line up a meeting with Yahoo Mail, no intent just because he was going to be there. And within two minutes of our conversation, he's like, hey, that change you mentioned, uh, it was a good idea. And our engineering team is doing it. It should probably be rolling out in the next few days. And what, what was the change that you suggested? So I'm looking at, I think this is the blog post from December 16th, 2013, Back to the Future, Gmail turns on images and email. And it was about how they don't want images to be hand, to be turned on by default, but they're going to... Anyway, at the top of it, they have an update that says that they basically reverse themselves. Yeah. So the change still exists, but we had the ability to pass a no cache header to... Okay. Uh, to Google. So when, when Gmail sees that, it says, don't cache this thing. They still mask IP address. Uh, and I believe Yahoo Mail does as well. So the geolocation may not work. Um, but essentially, we were able to force the content not to be cached. So some, you just said, look, make exceptions for some images. Here's how we use this. If anyone abuses it, you can always go back and shut that sender off. Yeah. But- and- no one was going to abuse it. They were doing it for performance reasons, right? The caching was for a performance reason. And so we said, look, I get that's a performance reason. Here's a legitimate use case. It's a better experience. We're not an, e- we're not an ESP. We're not spamming people. We're making the content better. And you know, they, they, they understood the argument and they said, this makes sense. And we gave them a technical solution, which was easy. We thought easy to implement. We never thought. It was, it was a real surprise that they, that they did the thing that we asked. But you know, it taught me and Michael and our whole company the lesson that you you never quit fighting. There's always a way, even if the odds seem astronomically small. Uh, yeah, I see it here. It's cash control colon no cash max age equals zero. That's like you you specifically did a blog post explaining how this. Well, Michael did explaining how this worked, and the person who helped make this happen was Allison Lindland. Am I right? Allison's wonderful. She was like employee. 13 or 14, still with the company. She just crossed eight years of the company. And uh, basically, anytime I bump into some random person, they're like, oh, I know Movable Inc. They, they, know, they bump into Allison. Her network is her, her title is VP of Strategy. That's a title? Yeah, senior VP of Client Strategy. Okay. So, because, uh, what does that mean? When she started, we, we thought we needed a business development person. I, she'd sort of accepted another job. I walked around the block with her and made the case for Movable Inc. And <clears throat> I'm grateful she, she accepted. So she joined there. She, she spent a lot of time. She ran our client experience team for a while. And today, does a client strategy role, which is 
uh, about engaging with our clients at the highest level, at a senior C-level, exec level, Mm -hmm. and helping them achieve their strategic initiatives. So we do these three to six-month engagements with clients, understand their data, make sense of their business. It's almost like a management consultant or McKinsey engagement with some of the biggest brands. Uh, Okay. All right. You were able to go for a walk with her. Today, you have 300, how many people at your company? 330 people. 330 people. You told our producer, look, now it's a lot tougher. People don't remember that I was the guy who took out the garbage to change the coffee. What's what's changed now for you as a leader of the company and how are, how are you changing because of it? Yeah, I mean, the early days, you know, I'm 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 just another guy. There's tons of startups, there's tons of people who have the CEO title, but it doesn't mean a whole lot. And no one had a cha- uh, no one had a problem arguing with me, right? I was begging Fandango to let us do another send. So I, in in some ways, I miss that because there's an honesty in that conversation. You're trying to fix something. You're trying to, and today, it's not intentional. But the people who haven't been there for the full journey don't know me that same way. The guy sitting around the table with ten other people and taking out the garbage or uh, working on that sales deck or you know, putting the sign up, painting the walls. And so, you know, sometimes they, there, there can be some being deferential. And I'm, that's the worst thing that can happen to you as a leader if one, you don't get the, the reality. So one of the biggest things I, I encourage everyone to do is just be totally direct with me. And uh, let's have real conversations because we're all trying to solve real things. And if we don't do that, we don't get better. So uh, that that's a weird change that happens at some point. How, have, how can you encourage people to be direct and tell you you're wrong when they hardly know you? What do you yeah. do? One one thing you can sh- share is some of your own failures, things that you mm. screw up, things that you don't get right. And so showing that vulnerability that you're, you're not infallible, you, you make mistakes, and here's some things we got right, here's some things we got wrong. I also do a weekly email to the company called Top of Mind. And so I, this, I think this helps them understand where I'm coming from. And my hope is that they get to know me a little bit better. So it's easier to pick up a conversation or talk about something and not feel like uh, I'm this other guy who's completely different and should be talked to in a different way. Were you guys remote before? We weren't. We, were, no. uh, we started out in General Assembly when uh, the first group at 902 Broadway. And so now that you've gone remote, how are you more how can you be this kind of accessible person who tells people to call me out? Tell me when I've done something wrong. Well, the, well, the, writing, the writing I started two years ago, that's been helpful. So once we moved into this new world, writing words have a really powerful way of communicating ideas, right? Sometimes we're talking to one another and there's a lot of, uh, lot of information coming at you. Someone's body language, other things you can read or not read, but you have this ability to be very precise with writing. And uh, I've tried to hone this uh, craft in the last couple of years. So that's one thing. And then Zoom meetings. You know, one of the cool things is I get to have a mix of lots of different types of people. That it's very easy to pop into a meeting. You don't have the water cooler conversation, but it also means the people that were in the field. You know, I might I might be in a meeting with them, and it's like we're all just boxes on a screen. There's no no one with a higher status box in a in a Zoom screen. I do feel like 
my friend Shane Mack has been saying for a while, we need a clubhouse for businesses, you know, clubhouse, the social network, yep. so that it could just be running in the background and let people in a company just go in and chat, maybe have somebody lead it. He's, I see that he's been experimenting with it by creating these little clubhouses, inviting some of his friends to come in. The founder of Geek Squad, um, Robert Stevens, sent me a message saying they're doing it one day. I don't think they nailed it, but what do you think of that? Do you, do you think that's the kind of thing that would be helpful? I think it's a great idea. I've been thinking about just that. So I've been on Clubhouse not that long, a couple of months. But this ambient, you know, video is exhausting, right? Yeah. Calls all day. So when this all started, we were encouraging everyone to be on video. And at some point, we're like, you know what? That takes a toll. Everyone should be free to, if you want to be on a walking meeting, if you just want to have your AirPods, you want to have your video off, your kids screaming in the next room, whatever Mm -hmm. it happens to be. Having that off is great. And what I like about Clubhouse is just the the ambient way, kind of the, the passive conversation you can you can follow along. It's like the first AirPod social network or community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can pop in, pop out, and it isn't as much like the spotlight is on you every single second, which you can't keep up all day. So I, I, I really like that. And just being able to pop in, pop out, maybe someone's saying something interesting, maybe not, maybe you just want to hear it in the background. It's that leave quietly button. When they renamed the button to leave quietly, it made the whole experience feel less like an obligation and more like a serendipitous experience. You just pop in, pop out. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. I, I'm curious to see how this stuff works. The one thing that I would like for them to add, and I guess even if we have it internally, it would be helpful is to have some chat. I don't, sometimes I just want to chat one-on-one with someone and acknowledge something they said. All right, dude, how excited are you? What's the best part of having gotten here? Like I see how tough it was, how hard you worked and how far you've come. What's the best part for you? You know, there's ups and downs. It it doesn't, there's always something out of left field that might surprise you. But the rewarding thing now is to see this thing. It's a, you know, I've got a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old, and this is kind of like my third kid to see it growing, changing the culture, becoming something really unique to see the wonderful people that we bring in that are able to solve problems, be there for each other, especially this last year, really be there for each other and support each other. It's, it's a pretty amazing thing to spark this to life, but it's, it's not ours. You know, we, we were the caretaker really early on and everyone's got this collective responsibility for, for the culture and the impact we're having for you know 700 plus clients. These just who's who list of clients that we get to work with. So yeah. Got to step back sometimes and go. Wow, how how did this happen? I saw that. So I've been going through the Internet Archives to see what the site used to look like. I see things like Agile. There was one year where Agile just took over everything on the homepage. Yeah, Agile email. That Agile email marketing. Yeah, uh, it's like but, we were trying to make that happen. You were trying to create that as a as a movement. Yeah. But the thing that seems to be consistent throughout is the brands that you're associated with. That they're just constantly there. It's the companies that we all know and respect that are not going to put their their trust in some fly-by-night email operator and that you've created that for them. All right. Congratulations. I cannot wait to see what happens with... Uh, when someone says an IPO is coming up, then I start to just get like, when is it going to happen? I don't know how I could sit still for if I were you, but I can't wait for that for that day. And congratulations on getting here. Thank you, Andrew. And thank you for doing what you do. You know, love your show. And it, it, I, I think it, I've got, I got a lot of insights in those early years from, from watching. 
Well, right on. Thank you so much. The website for everyone who's listening is Movable Inc. I-N-K, movableinc.com. And I want to thank the two sponsors who made this interview happen. The first, if you want your email sorted right so that you could get to the stuff that you need when you need it, do what I did. Just test them out. Go to sanebox.com slash Mixergy. And the second, when you need your website hosted, go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy. All right. Thanks. Thanks so much for doing this. Great to see you, Andrew. All right. Good night. I see it getting darker and darker as we're continuing here. All right. Bye.